and we've been working on this program today, and we're just really delighted to present it to you. And um, I am so honored that our first speaker this morning is going to be Dina Goldberg, a member of our congregation, which we're very proud of, and a genetic counselor. And uh, one thing that's really important that Dina was so generous about, I hope everybody took or will take a, a program. They're right outside there, plenty of them. You can grab it on your way out. And she gives you lots of contact information because I know you're going to get a lot of information today and you may have some follow-up questions. So Dina, thank you so much. Welcome. And then after Dina, we're going to have a, a conversation with Dr. Laura Esserman and Justine Shapiro, and that'll be coming up next. Well, thank you guys. Um, so just to start off, I want to give a quick introduction about who I am. Uh, I'm originally from a suburb of Chicago, and I have a little sister with a genetic disorder, so I've been uh, involved in genetics for a really long time. I've worked in genetics research, and then I've also worked in uh, cancer research. And then I did my training down in Southern California, where I learned a lot about Jewish genetics and the issues that affect our community. Um, and so I developed a program when I was in grad school where I went around and talked to different com Jewish communities about Jewish genetics and Jewish genetic testing. Um, and so I'm excited to be here to share all that with you today. So I'm a member of your community and also a genetic counselor at UCSF. And so what are we going to, what's today about? Well, traditionally, when people think of Jewish genetics, they think of things like uh, family planning or carrier screening for something like Tay-Sachs. And just to let you know, today is not about prenatal genetics. So if you have questions about that, you can find me later. But we're going to be focusing on oncology, so on cancer. And I'm going to be talking about um, what a cancer gene is and why it's important for our community to understand that. And then a, a few other things as well. And so I'm sure something all of you are wondering, uh, I get asked this all the time, what is a genetic counselor? So just to let you know uh, off the bat, I'm a healthcare professional and I specialize in pretty much all things medical genetics. So uh, genetic counselors have training in prenatal, pediatric, cancer, a few other specialties, and I happen to specialize in cancer genetics. Um, and so I'm like a, almost a genetics consultant that a physician might come to if they have questions about one of their patients that for genetic testing or they may refer to. Um, I also support families and help them find the resources and the specialists that they need to see. So that's a little bit about what I do. And then a little bit about why Jewish. Why are we talking about Jewish genetics? So just to introduce the topic, I'll give you a brief history. Um, so if we look at all Jews today, we know that there's about three hot spots in history where uh, there's these, this, these small communities that all Jews come from. So the first is in Spain, that's the Sephardic Jews who traveled through northern Africa and outside. And then there's the Middle Eastern Jews, that's the Mizrahi Jews. And then there's this, uh, oops, uh-oh, then there is the, um, the Ashkenazi Jews. And that makes up the majority of Jews today. And Ashkenazi Jews originate from a very small community of about 350 people in Eastern Europe, probably around Germany. So because we all are related to these original 350 people, our genetics have been passed down through many generations. And since Jews were banished and kicked out of all the different countries and communities that they lived in, 
they were forced to have children within this small community. And so it's a very isolated gene pool when we're looking at the genetics. And so some traits that, um, that originated within that original population, a lot of those passed down today. And so that's why Jewish genetics is almost its own field of study. Uh, really interesting. So now moving on to cancer and what we, how we look at cancer from a genetics point of view. Um, there's three categories that we typically think of when we're looking at cancer. The first would be sporadic, which I'll talk about in a second. That's the majority of cancers. And then there's a 10 to 20% about that are familial, and then uh, about 5 to 10% that are in this small piece of the, uh, the pie that are hereditary. And so my job is to try and figure out if a family falls into the hereditary category or not. So what's the difference between these? So in a sporadic family history, the most common type of cancer history, we would see one person affected typically at an average or older than average age for that type of cancer. So if we're talking about breast cancer, we know that the average age is around probably 62. And we know that also one in eight women about will develop a breast cancer in their lifetime. Now, since we don't at this time yet know uh, a way to figure out who those one in eight women will be. It's, uh, it's the NCCN or the National Cancer Comprehensive Network recommends that women starting at 40 have mammograms every year, but that's something that will probably change as we get more personalized with some of the research that Dr. Esserman will be talking about. Um, but at this point in time, that's the, that's the general consensus. And so, um, Typically with these sporadic cancers, it's usually due to a mix of a whole bunch of different risk factors and it's not something that you inherit. So family members aren't typically at an increased risk. Um, and something that's always sporadic, just to give you a point of reference, would be something like lung cancer. So people who smoke cigarettes, there's an association with lung cancer. Cervical cancer also is always sporadic because it's caused by the human papillomavirus and it's not something that gets inherited. There's no genetic mutation for it. Um, and so this category is really going to be your uh, more exposures and not genetics. The second category is the familial. And in these families, we see multiple people with cancer affected at an average or older than average age. And it's more than we would expect to see in a sporadic family history. And this is probably because of a mixture of overall genetics and the environment. So imagine two siblings grow up in the same household. They have the same exposures, the same environment, the same maybe diet and lifestyle. Individually, those risk factors are not very big, but when you put them all together, they have similar risks, and that's why we'd see multiple people. Um, and then the third category is hereditary cancers. And in these families, we typically see multiple generations of cancer at younger than average ages. Uh, we see cancers that go together, something like breast and ovarian, or uterine and colon. Uh, and it would be, like I said, at a younger age, more rare types of cancers, cancer-impaired organs, so something like bilateral breast cancer. Uh, those are the types of people that get referred to my clinic to figure out if they, they fit into that category. And so this category is caused by a single genetic mutation that we can look for on a genetic test. The other two categories, we cannot, uh, there's no genetic test available at this point. And so we just use population data to try and figure out uh, of all women, let's say, who have breast cancer at 70, how many have a first degree relative with it? But that data is only as good as the populations that we study. So at this point, the best, uh, the, only, the only genetic test is for this category. 
Okay, now we're gonna move on to a little genetics 101. So I'm sure you all are, you all are aware that we're all made up of cells and our cells, we have different types of cells um, and they all have different jobs. Now within every cell we have our chromosomes and those are packages of genetic material. And if you unwind a chromosome, you're gonna have your DNA. It's, DNA is like the string that makes up the chromosome. And different segments of DNA are referred to as genes. And so our genes, they all have different jobs, but all genes make proteins, and the proteins are what our body's made up and what, how our body functions. So that's kind of the, um, the dogma of biology here. And we have in every cell about 20,000 different genes, and it's in every single cell in our body, but not every cell uses every gene. So depending on what type of cell it is, it's gonna use different genes. And so um, how are they inherited? We're gonna use this as an example of one gene right here. So um, the, in this, you know, dad passes down one copy, mom passes down one copy, and it's totally random which copy is passed down. And so that's how we're all different because we're always a recombination of our parents' genetic material. And so when we're talking about how cancer actually forms and genetics, we're gonna uh, start with sporadic cancer. So Generally, in the general population, you know, all of us have uh, these 20,000 genes, and there's a handful of them that are referred to as cancer genes, but they're not really cancer genes. They're actually protective genes that protect our cells from developing into cancer. And so one, an example of one of those genes is BRCA, uh, which I'm sure you have all heard of and I'll talk about a little more later. Uh, BRCA stops our cells from becoming cancer. Um, and so everybody's born with two copies of a BRCA mutation. Now let's say uh, 30 or 40 years goes by, and in one of the cells in this person, one of the genes acquires a mutation and stops working. Well, that's okay because this person has a backup copy, so that cell that had that first acquired mutation will not, stop work, or will not turn to cancer. It has this, this gene that's still doing its job. And another 30 or 40 years goes by, and the second mutation is acquired in the other copy in another cell. So that would mean that this particular cell does not have the BRCA mutation doing its job and therefore will, will develop cancer. And so this would happen typically with any of these cancer genes. If you look at any cancer that anybody has, we find an accumulation of different mutations within the tumor. But if you look at the original cell makeup of the person by looking at blood or saliva, there's no mutation. And so we call this the sporadic cancer. Now, let's say um, same situation, but this time, this person inherits a copy of a gene that already has a mutation and already isn't working from one parent and a normal copy from another parent. Now, that person is a, what we call a carrier of whatever that mutation is. So if we're thinking BRCA, then this person was born with a mutation already. That same 30 or 40 years goes by and the, the first mutation is acquired, well, this person wasn't born with that backup copy. So this person will uh, be at risk for having cancer in half the time as somebody who's born with two working copies. And so, um, and that, and so that's why a typical cancer, let's say, develops around 60 to 80 years, whereas somebody who has one of these mutations may develop it younger than that. And so by looking at blood or saliva, we can actually tell if somebody has, uh, was born with a mutation or if they were not. 
And so when we're looking at how these uh, genes are actually spread through each, uh, through different generations, there's different probabilities. So if we're looking at the combination uh, that each of these makes, we know that the father has a 50% chance of passing down the non-working gene and a 50% the working gene. And mom only has working genes, so she'll only pass those down. So that, that shows you that uh, every time this couple has a child, there's a 50% chance the child will have the non-working copy and a 50% they won't. So it's like a coin flip each time a couple has a child. And so then these people here, because they do not have this mutation, they cannot pass it down. So in this family, that mutation stops here. But these two have a 50% chance of passing it to their kids. Um, and so, like I said, we can look at blood or saliva to look at what somebody's original, what we call germline genetics looks like. That's original makeup. And so when we're, when we're thinking about hereditary breast cancer, we know that of the 5 to 10% that uh, is hereditary, a good amount of those are caused by mutations in BRCA1 and BRCA2. And then we have another, uh, about a third, maybe probably more, that are caused by mutations in other breast cancer genes. And those genes may uh, cause less of a risk. So they may be moderate risk genes. They're not as high risk as the BRCA genes. And some of them are very similar to the risk. So it depends on the gene that somebody has a mutation in. And so why is this important to our community? So if you think back to when I was talking about how we all originated from this small population, there were probably about three people in this population that had three different mutations. So each person maybe had a mutation in different points along BRCA1 and 2. And because it was a small community and, and the community uh, had children with each other, uh, about one in 40 Ashkenazi Jews today has one of these three mutations. And so that's why it's so important for uh, Ashkenazi Jews to be aware of this, because uh, that's 10 times higher than the general population. But it's still 39 and 40 that don't have one, so it's still the majority will not have a mutation. But just because that is a higher statistic, it's just good to know and be aware, because if we can find one in 40 people that have this and possibly prevent or, or delay onset of a cancer, then it's worth it. So. Um, if we look at the cancer risk for a BRCA mutation carrier, the breast cancer risk can be pretty high, up to about 85%. And it depends if you have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, the risks are a little bit different. And then there's also this risk of ovarian cancer and prostate cancer, which not everybody is aware of. Um, and I, I know a lot of patients are surprised too that there's these risks of male breast pancreatic and melanoma as well. Now they're not as high, but um, they're still there, and we do see them in some families that have mutations. Um, and so the other thing that's recently found is that it's a little bit hard to see, but uh, these people are, are orange. They're supposed to be represented that they're affected. So if we look at all people that have been found to carry a BRCA mutation that, are, that just test for, uh, in the Ashkenazi Jewish community, there's been studies done that 50% of them have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer, and 50% of them actually do not because they inherited it from their paternal side. So because the, the risk of cancer is so much lower in a male that has BRCA, it can actually go through generations without ever um, progressing into cancer, and so it can appear invisible in families when there's a lot of males and no females or there's small families. And so um, that's just another reason why it, it 
is good to know because not everyone knows their status until they end up developing a cancer. Um, and it's also thought that only about 10 to 20 percent of people who carry these mutations actually are aware of it. And again, that one in 40 um, in the Ashkenazi uh, community will carry a mutation. And so there's been a lot of buzz about whether uh, population, general population screening should be offered to Ashkenazi Jews, and it's something that uh, there hasn't really been any decision on. Um, but there's, uh, at the end of the talk, I'll talk about a few things that are happening, uh, studies and uh, research, and then also services that you can do if you're interested in having this test. Um, and so what does someone do if they have a mutation? And this is something that uh, the two ladies will be talking about later, so I'm just going to throw it out there what, what they're talking about. So there's two routes that somebody can go, typically, who has a mutation. Uh, the first one would be screening, so increased screening. So when a female is discovered to have a BRCA mutation, we typically recommend starting with breast MRIs around 25 years old and then throwing in mammograms at age 30 and then alternating every six months with uh, breast MRI and mammogram uh, once somebody hits 30. And then there's also the clinical breast exams they'll be getting once or twice a year and self-breast exams. And there's some options for chemo prevention, so certain medications that could decrease risk. And so that's, that's kind of the first route is the screening. Now the second option that some people choose, and it's not right for everybody, but for some people they'd rather do this, is a pre bilateral preventative mastectomy, which means the removal of the breast tissue, which significantly decreases the risk for breast cancer. And so some women may choose that they feel that they don't want to do that increased screening because it brings some anxiety or a lot of anxiety for people. And so they choose to have a surgery so that they don't have, they can avoid that. Um, but other women really feel like they don't want to have that and they'd rather go in for screening. So it, everybody's unique and that's a reason why uh, you, a woman with this mutation can talk to their doctor, their genetic counselor, their oncologist, their surgeon to try and make the decision that's right for them. Um, and then the other thing for a woman with a BRCA mutation, ovarian cancer risk is greatly increased. It's not the majority of the risk, but it's still high. And because ovarian cancer can be very aggressive and it's not symptomatic until later on, um, and there's no real good screening for it. So we recommend that women who have a BRCA mutation have their uh, ovaries and fallopian tubes removed after they're done having children. An emphasis on after, we would never tell a woman not to have kids. We would want her to go through childbearing and then uh, speak with their doctor about that. Um, and so then the moderate risk category would be somebody with a strong family history but maybe doesn't have a genetic mutation or we haven't found their genetic mutation. That person, okay, that person would, um, would follow very similar to population guidelines, which is mammogram at 40, but possibly different depending on what their provider says. And then ovarian cancer as well in Jews. Again, people were typically just tested for um, BRCA1 and 2, but there's actually some other mutations that can cause ovarian cancer as well. Uh, and then what about colon cancer? So Ashkenazi Jews actually have higher rates of colorectal cancer than uh, the regular population. And we don't really understand this at this point in time, why it is. Uh, but the, their rates are about tw two or three times as high. And so one thing uh, that I do want to mention that not a lot of people are aware of, uh, first of all, there's this uh, very severe syndrome called FAP that causes hundreds to thousands of polyps. Um, and it's caused by a mutation in a gene called APC. 
Now, in Jews, there's a specific mutation that's found in about 6 to 11 percent of all Ashkenazi Jews, but it does not cause this classic FAP at all. It just causes an increased risk for colorectal cancer and to about a 10 to 20 percent lifetime risk. And so um, some Jew, Ashkenazi Jews with this mutation may have more polyps than usual. And because of that, the NCCN recommends colonoscopy every five years begin, beginning at 40 instead of every 10 years beginning at 50. So just knowing you have this is helpful. Um, the thing about colon cancer is it's one of the most preventable co uh, types of cancer because colorectal cancer comes from colon polyps and routine colonoscopy removes those polyps as it sees them. And so it's pretty much preventing risk for colon cancer if you're on your colonoscopy schedule. Um, and then the last thing I just wanted to mention are the benefits and limitations to testing. So uh, one of the benefits is uh, testing may explain cancer in somebody's history. So maybe someone has this uh, history of cancer, they don't understand it, and the testing might be the answer. The results may help with medical management decisions and also family member risk assessment. And there's some risks too. So uh, knowing these results can cause some anxiety. Uh, not everybody wants to know. And a normal result could give false reassurance. So uh, if somebody didn't have the right genetic test then, and they have a mutation in a certain gene that wasn't on that test, they may think they're off the hook, but they didn't have a full comprehensive test. And so that's why seeing a genetics provider is, is going to be the best option. Um, and then the possibility of insurance or employment discrimination, that is not an issue at this point because there's a law called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA, that prohibits health insurance companies and places of employment from discriminating against someone based on genetic status. It doesn't cover life insurance. Um, so some people do think about having a plan before testing, but if somebody has had cancer, then they're already going to have discrimination, and the genetic test result won't, won't really have anything to do with that. Um, and then the negative results uh, is only really informative when the right person in the family is tested. So if somebody has breast cancer and ovarian cancer in a family and their child does not, if the child comes in and tests and they're negative, it doesn't tell us if their parent really would have been positive or not. And so until we know their family mutation, we wouldn't be able to say that they're a true negative um, until we figure that out. And then their negative test result will, will be real, a real negative. Um, and then testing also at this point, the technology is only as good as it is in, at this point in time, and so it doesn't pick up every mutation, but every few years, there's uh, more, the technology gets better, the gene list gets better, uh, and then there's also results that we may not always be able to interpret, so another reason that talking to a genetic counselor about the results is, is helpful. Um, great, so I'm going to turn it over, oh, so just really quick, points to remember. Having a mutation does not mean you have cancer. It just means that you have an increased risk of cancer. And by getting ahead of that, you can, um, you can be more cautious and catch anything. And the big point I just want to make is that the majority of people who undergo testing will not have a, one of these mutations. You know, it's, it's rare to actually have it, but for the people that find it, it can be life-changing. And genetic counselors are here for you, um, depending on where you test and who, where your provider is, and to help guide you through the process if you do have a mutation. All right. Now to hear for the second part. Thank you. That was amazing. Dina, thank you so much for, it's just, it's a lot of information. It's hard information. Again, we're very 
grateful that Dina has given all the contact. And of course, immediately following this session, there are some really great tables with information and Dina will be out there too answering questions. We um, originally just sort of thought, oh yeah, we'll get five really fascinating people from different perspectives and they'll all be in one of those panels and they'll all have a, a microphone and a glass of water. But then we thought it would be um, so much more informative for all of us if we could ask a doctor and her patient to have a conversation about what that was like and what they went through. And so I'm so grateful to invite Dr. Laura Esserman and our congregant Justine Shapiro to come join us up on the tables. Rabbi Fenves, are you here, Rabbi? Yeah, can you help them get their um, lavaliers set up and we'll make sure that we can hear you or we'll pass this back and forth if all else fails. Um, you know, I've, I came here uh, three years ago and I, have so many congregants coming in to talk to me and I hear I just Dr. Esserman I just want you to hear this I hear your name on a weekly basis from members of our congregation this is I've come to find out this is our rock star surgeon here in town and has been so important in saving lives and um, you know I just want to say that I thought it was so um, generous of Justine who is a documentary film producer and many other great things um, to share, really to share with us her experience. And I also, I, I need to say a very special thanks to our friend, my friend, Dr. Ingrid Tauber for really making a lot of this possible today. And I know you're connected to these women and to me and, and us to you. And we wanna get this information out, but in a way that you can really digest it. So um, I just wanna thank you both. I'm gonna bring you your steaming mugs of tea as promised. And um, we look forward to hearing your, your conversation. Testing, ooh. Okay, okay so can you all hear me? Well, thanks very much for, for having me here. I think that uh, our goal here is to really take the facts and really turn them into stories. Because that's how people learn. People learn by stories, and people need to understand what's scary, what's not scary, what are the goals we have in trying to understand this information, and how can we help people, and what's the real impact that it has on people's lives. Um, you know, our, our goal really is to try and I, I think a good analogy to thinking about screening is, uh, I mean, this is a great analogy. How, how many people have taken an airplane flight in the last year? How many people have pre-checked? How many people think it's an awesome idea? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so we actually are very used to the idea of screening keyed to risk. And if you want to think about it, you want to think about, for us, in thinking about going forward, is how do we find the people on the no-fly list? There are not very many of them. I said, okay, uh, let's see, let me move this up a little bit. I said, so what we'd like to really do is think about finding people on the no-fly list. Right? The first role of screening should be for the people at the most risk. And how can we give them the tools they need to figure out how they'd like to manage their risk? And there are lots of options, and there's no one right way. Uh, that's, what, that's what shared decision-making is for. And so I, I think it's important to go back and say, okay, 
you know, and, and later in the talk we can get to how do we make this more, how do we take it from being kind of scary and hysterical and kind of make it more about the routine of how we approach screening and general breast health or just general health overall. So I, I think it's important for us to take a step back and sort of think about how this might today might come to pass, and then we can talk about in the future how we hope it might come to pass. So Justine, um, I really appreciate your being willing to talk today and be candid about your own personal experience. I think it's incredibly helpful for people to hear about how you came to understand this information and then how it impacted you personally. So, and then we can talk about the decisions that were made and the process. But can we start with, how, how, did, how did you happen? Did you know anything about the RCA1 before you found out you had it? Uh, oh, gosh, that's loud. I can talk a little softer then. Um, well, in uh, 2009, my family is um, originally from the shtetl in Lithuania. And uh, my grandparents emigrated to South Africa in the early um, 1900s. And my father, who's here, and my mother, who's here, um, uh, and my sister and I, we were all born in South Africa. My mother's brother, uh, he moved his family to Israel. In 2009, we got news that my mom's brother, Teddy, that his daughter, who was in her late 30s, uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer. And in Israel, it's uh, pretty typical that if uh, an Ashkenazi Jewish woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, the rest of her family members are tested. And, and she's also tested. So she was tested, and she tested positive. And then her father, my mom's brother, tested, and he tested positive. And my mom is giving me this news, and I'm just pretending it has nothing to do with me. And then my cousin Deborah's two sisters tested, and one tested positive and one tested negative. So at that point, um, my mom's physician told her that it would be a good idea for her to get tested. Um, and so I went with my mom. We were at the John Muir Health Center in Walnut Creek. And I went with my mom to meet with the genetic counselor there. And she explained you know, what the likelihood was, sort of did the Dina thing that you just saw. And um, my mom did the test. Uh, fortunately for us, um, the insurance covered it. And my mom tested positive. Now, at that time, um, this was 2010. Um, I had just met Rabbi Sidney Mintz, and we met in August, and my mother was tested positive for BRCA in October. And I was 47, and I had a nine-year-old son. So flashback to 2005, I'm sitting with a colleague of mine, a a wonderful documentary filmmaker. We're having lunch. And I said, so, Joanna, what are you working on these days? And she said, well, I'm, I'm making a film called All in the Family. Um, I tested positive for the BRCA gene. Um, you know, 
there's a very high percentage of Ashkenazi Jewish women who test positive for it. And, you know, I'm 31, I just met this guy, I haven't had kids, and I'm really in this dilemma about, you know, my mother had breast cancer, my grandmother had breast cancer, and I'm just in this dilemma place about what to do now that I have this information. And I was like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I was like, oh, that has nothing to do with me. So, um, uh, what should we have for lunch? Like, I didn't want to talk about it. It had nothing to do with me. And I remember, because those who know me, I'm a very curious, prying type of person. And I really didn't want to know anything more about Joanna's story. So in October, um, I got, <clears throat> I was tested. And uh, uh, prior to that, I sat with a genetics counselor at John Muir, prepared for this test, was tested and tested positive. And um, so Sydney and I went back to the gen genetics counselor, and she basically rolled out what my percentage chances were of getting breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And her numbers were, her, her estimate of breast cancer was in the 60s. And of course, at this point, Sydney is you know, talking to everyone, learning as much as she can. And she said, I want you to see Dr. Esserman. I want you to see Dr. Laura Esserman. I just want you to be in UCSF. Now, I had health insurance by the skin of my teeth. And um, I couldn't transfer into the UCSF system. So Sydney was so adamant that I go to the Diller Cancer Center and that I see Dr. Esserman that we paid out of pocket to see Dr. Esserman. And um, yeah, it was a really strange time. I mean, I suddenly became very real, especially when I walked into the waiting room of the, the Diller Center and it wasn't like at John Muir, where you kind of went into this office and went into that office. I walked in. There were many women in the waiting room who didn't have hair. And it was very clearly a place that was dedicated to caring for people who had breast cancer. And it was very organized. And, and I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? Like, I've never had surgery. I, you know, I never get the flu. Like, what am I doing here. And then I met Dr. Esserman and really did not expect to see that this, you know, lauded, renowned, world famous breast surgeon would look like this wonderful, <laughs> warm, caring, personable human being. And um, I, I thought I would be really intimidated. And um, she made me feel comfortable. But she took it really seriously and, um, you know, started to give me some idea of what my options would be. And she also threw out a number that I hadn't heard yet, which is that my BRCA mutation conferred closer to 85% risk of breast cancer. And, you know, I, I know women who have had breast cancer. I know women who have died from breast cancer. And then, of course, I'd just been in this waiting room. So um, at that point, um, Sydney and I became registered domestic partners. This is three months into our relationship. Um, I guess we kind of knew we wanted to be together anyway, and we are. <laughs> 
but in order for me to get the health insurance, we had to become registered domestic partners so that I could have the insurance she gets from the temple. And at that point, I started the process that most anyone goes through, where I then met with a genetics counselor at UCSF, who was clearly, just clearly more knowledgeable than the genetics counselor I had met at John Muir. And so that was kind of interesting for me to see that at that time, at least in 2010, there were kind of fluctuating opinions. Um, and um, what was interesting for me was my sister refused to test. Um, she lives in a very small town. She didn't have health insurance. And she didn't have the support that I had. Um, I had my father living here, my mother living here, my stepmother, um, Sydney, this community. I'd never belonged to a synagogue before, and it was like, oh, wow, this is what you get? You know? Um, I, and, and this, you know, I had Dr. Esserman and, and her. Laura, stop calling me Dr. Esserman. Okay, Laura. I can call her Laura now because my stepson and her son are really good friends. Everybody so. calls me Laura. That's the way it is. Laura. And, and her team, you know, the, the people who work at the breast care center, uh, Debbie Homolsky, um, who, you know, kind of ref sits very patiently with each of, the, each of the patients and goes over the options. Um, the genetic counselors, everyone is so available. And my sister didn't have any of, any of that support. So I really understood that, you know, if she were to test positive, she just anticipated that that would be a really difficult situation for her. Um, the genetics counselor at UCSF understood this, and she, of her own volition, made many calls to the area where my sister lived to find places where my sister could get the support that she would need. But still, she refused to test. It took almost af after my surgery that she decided to get tested, and it was more so that she would know for herself what chances her son would have. She tested negative. Um, when I sat with Debbie Homolsky, she went through the, op the options with me. And what I understood at the time was that I had the option to not do anything and you know, commit to a super healthy lifestyle. And that was you know, one of the thoughts. I grew up in Berkeley. I was like, OK, I'm going to commit to a super healthy lifestyle. And, <laughs> Um, but I also had to know myself, and I worry about earthquakes every single day. And I just, you know, I'd had this, uh, I, I had the image of, you know, Democles' sword over my head. And I kind of knew that given who I am, like living with that possibility, living with that thing that I now knew was inside of me, I kind of knew the living a healthy lifestyle and you know, being in a place of peace with that. It wasn't me. Um, so my other option was that I take uh, an estrogen inhibitor, tamoxifen or something, and get regular screenings every six months. But what was also explained to me is that the cancer can be so virulent that something could happen between those six months. So that didn't feel great to me. What was a no-brainer for me was that I would have my ovaries and fallopian tubes removed. I had my son. I wasn't going to have any more. Um, my concern about that was that I got migraines. I never had a headache in my life until after my son was born, and then I got regular migraines around my um, menstrual period and ovulation. 
So my concern was that I was going to go into surgical menopause because they remove everything, boom. And, and then the question was, do I get my breast tissue removed? And when Laura said to me, I said, well, what are my chances of getting breast cancer after the surgery? And Laura said, you, it, almost nil. I'm going to remove all your breast tissue. And then I started to understand why Laura is considered one of the great breast surgeons, because that's what she does so well, besides her wonderful bedside manner, which is not common to find in surgeons, from what I understand from so many women I've spoken to since who have gone through this. Um, so um, while I'm trying to make my decision, Sydney's introducing me to members of the congregation who have had breast cancer and have had reconstruction and have had mastectomy. I remember the first woman I met, you know, we went and we sat in her house and we're talking about everything. And she said, do you want to touch my breasts? I was like, that's the only thing I want to do is I want to see what it looks like. I want to see what it feels like. I'd never touched a woman's breast. I was, I'm not, you know, Sydney's my first you know, woman partner. I'd like never, this was like all new for her. I was like, yes, I would like to see your breasts. I'd like to touch your breasts. And she just got it, you know. And um, so, you know, I met with women. I talked to women. I looked online at Force, which is a great resource, um, which you can learn more about. There's some flyers out there. And then, oh, and then I, I, I had to get a scan at some point, and I was in the waiting room just adjacent to the center, and it was like a play. It was like this one room. Everyone is sitting there. They call your name. You go in. They tell you whether you have breast cancer or not, and then women come out. So I'm sitting here in this room with all these women who are sort of waiting, and it was kind of like this one woman, she, she was talking about how great Dr. Laura was and how great Dr. Foster, who does the reconstruction, she pulls up her shirt. She's like, look at what he did. This is Foster's work. It's amazing, you know? And she let me touch her breast. There was like this kind of comfort in this space, you know? I was the very last person to get the results of my scan. And right before the last woman there, she went in, she came out, and she was in tears. And she was like, fuck, fuck. And she was so upset, and she was alone. And she went to the locker where she'd left her clothes, and she, and it was just this awful, it was just such a shocking, awful thing to see that, like all these women coming out with smiles, and then she came out like, fuck, fuck, fuck. And then uh, I went in and um, had my scan. Um, while I'm making this decision about what to do, I read an article in the New York Times about a woman who had, um, genetic testing on her fetus or some kind of test, and the fetus had BRCA, and she aborted her fetus. So that was very interesting, kind of got me thinking about the whole ethics of genetic testing and like thinking, maybe, I, maybe, I'll, maybe in the future I would be aborted. Um, so just to wrap up, um, in prior to the surgery, I did many things to prepare for the surgery, which I won't go into now. But one thing I did is because I'd never had a surgery, I'd never had to turn to friends and community for support around something like this. I emailed everyone I knew and I said, this is what I'm going through. And whoever sends me the cheesiest get well card, 
gets an eight by seven, eight by ten glossy of my new breasts. <laughs> and I got, I have like a box of just the worst, cheesiest cards. My friends in New York sent me a refrigerator box full of really good cheese. And, it, <laughs> and then the members of the congregation brought us food. Some of them are here, brought us food. We didn't have to cook for like three weeks. It was incredible feeling part of this community. And um, I remember after the surgery, my dad, my mom, everyone was in the room, and Laura came in. And I had heard that Laura sings to her patients. And I said, did you sing to me? Because I don't remember anything. And she said, yes, I sang to you. And I said, what did you sing? And then she sang Hashkivenu again to me, you know, while I'm lying there with the bandages and recovering. And I remember looking over at my dad, and he was weeping. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad that my parents know that I'm in such good hands. And um, so, you know, five years later, I, you know, I still have scar tissue. I have to massage every day. I did get reconstruction. If you want to see it after, I'm happy to show you. Um, and um, my cousin Deborah, her breast cancer came back. Um, it has metastasized. Um, and I think that's kind of that's kind of the story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's <clears throat> I think it's important. I think it's important that people not act out of fear. <clears throat> I think you have to act out of a place where you feel empowered and you feel like you are knowledgeable about what your options are because everybody does not want to do the same thing. Right. You know, in breast cancer, it's not one disease. One size doesn't fit all. We don't treat it anymore as if it is. So it's really important for us not to screen for it as if it is. And when we understand a little bit more about what people have, each person can have an individual conversation. Not everybody chooses, actually, to have prophylactic surgery. Sometimes that choice is because that's really what they want. Sometimes it's because maybe the risk is a little bit later. If we find someone who's in their 60s and has a mutation, and they have not had breast cancer themselves, their risk is not 85%. It's actually quite a bit lower. So these are, you know, you, the guidelines and the, there's, there's no one right answer. That's the, where you start. But then each Laura, person. Move, move it up even further. Okay. Is this, how about this? Yeah. <laughs> I'll just do that. <laughs> so I think that the, I think the important, I think the important point here is to say that if something, do you need to fear understanding this? And I think knowledge is power. Knowledge is power for a lot of things. So some people say, well, I don't want to know because I'm not married, I don't have kids, I don't want to feel like I have to have my ovaries out and give up having children. None of those things has to happen. But if you understand, are empowered with that knowledge, a particular program for you can be designed that meets you where you are, which I think is really very important because there's lots of things to know. You know, when Justine said that she had this history of migraines and she was so afraid of having her ovaries out, if you also have your breast tissue out, you can have estrogen replacement without any risk. I think that was perhaps one of the most important things for you in making your decision. Um, it's also, I mean, there are different things that we can do if you don't have children. It is really important 
I never want to operate on someone who doesn't want to have that kind of surgery. And we actually developed a lot of different procedures for people to be able to save the entire skin envelope, which really improved the cosmetics of it. Because actually, some of my patients said, why do you have to take the nipple skin? You know, why, do you have to, why is that important? And the dogma in surgery was, oh, you can't do that. The nipple skin wouldn't survive. And I began to think about it and think, well, how do we know? Who's really tried it? Um, and that's actually how we came up with what we call a total skin-sparing mastectomy. Like, uh, one of the things I like to think about is, what are you attached to? The outside appearance or the tissue inside, which you never see? So that's where we are today with some of the medications that we're developing specifically for people who have these, the, you know, so the, the hallmark of BRCA is that you can't repair the errors in your DNA. We actually have drugs that can actually help that. So there may actually be different prevention options going forward, which is really remarkable. You know, so you have to make a decision, what if something different came along three years from now? Would you feel sad? and so bereft if you had done this now. These are important things to ask because people need to say, well, maybe I can do screening for a few years. I'll wait and see how the field changes. These are all things that are possible. The whole business about trying to understand in a family, I actually think it's important before you have children, not because you have to do this, but because there are options. There are actually something called pre-implantation genetics. You actually, if you do egg harvesting, you can actually figure out, so you don't have to go through an issue of aborting a child, you can actually figure out which egg has the gene and which one doesn't, and just have the one implanted that does. That's a very different situation, and that's an opportunity. And it's not that you have to do it, it's that you can do it. Yes? You know, we're going to cover a lot of this stuff, um, and, and we'll be taking questions at the end. We just have this little bit of time here to have yeah. something of a Sorry, conversation. But it, but it is, it's, yeah. an, it's an important point, because it's important that people know what their options are. No, and I think it's important when you get something not to feel like, well, I have to do X, Y, or Z, but to say, am I empowered? Do I have all the tools for me that allow me to make that decision, right? And, you know, I always say, you know, the decision about whether someone goes forward with this really depends on what's the price to pay. For one person, having the surgery could be great. It really relieves them of anxiety. And for another person, it can be terrible. But that person shouldn't choose it. It's certainly not at that time. So I think it's an evolving conversation. So I think it's important. And, and you know, depending on what your situation is, 
there are other forms of prevention that could work. So I think that's really, I think, the, the, the hallmark of some of the things that we wanted to do. So Justine, what questions do you have um, for me? Well, you know, I really want to know, I want to know where you grew up and what was your inspiration to become a physician in the first place? And at what point did you dedicate yourself to breast cancer care? Okay, so I was born in Chicago. I was born in, uh, I grew up when I was little in Flossmoor. My family moved to Miami when I was in sixth grade. And uh, I actually, um, I went to school in the East Coast, but I moved out to California for medical school. And I found being out here so wonderful because, you know, it was, you know, all about ideas. And you were only as good as your latest idea and that day. Why medical school? Like who? Why medical school? Yeah. Well, I think when I was little, I was always interested in science. I, I was, I think sort of one of my heroes when I was little was Marie Curie. And uh, I thought, uh, uh, I thought that her curiosity and her inquisition and her ability to have changed an entire field because she pursued ideas and changes. And I thought cancer, I was always interested in cancer. I thought it was so interesting. Uh, I, I was, and I myself was always interested in cancer policy and research. And I, I think it was, it's a long story, we don't want to get into it, but uh, I had done work in policy, I'd done a fellowship in medical oncology, but, and at some point after I'd finished my training, I was recruited to go to business school and I, to learn about systems in medicine and try to think about how we could really improve care delivery and put all the pieces together. And I think it was there that I realized, wow, we, we lack the systems for improving cancer care. And um, I think that I felt that women at the time, this was in the early 90s, the way they were treated was they might have a lump, they were taken to the operating room, a frozen section was done, and they would wake up with or without a radical mastectomy. This was still going on in the 80s when I trained. That was a terrible thing to do. There were no choices. That would be, you know, and it was a very paternalistic system. Women had to put their own care teams together. I thought that was really terrible. And I felt that this was a field that could benefit so much by having an integrated care delivery system where people were actually caring for and paying attention to what mattered to women, that we really needed to push research to come up with better options, that, um, you know, that the two shouldn't be different. At the time, it was, well, you go to a research place and people aren't nice to you, or you go to a high-touch care and people don't know very much. I thought that was a false choice. That, in fact, if you put a center together where people really paid attention and cared, you know, really cared about people, that that, in fact, is the places people then trust you and want to do things. And I really felt that we needed to be much more impatient. That we really needed to think about how to make care better tomorrow than it is today. You know, I, 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 and I still feel this way. I feel we have been very accepting of, of, of the status quo as if it's okay. You know, if the status quo was so great, 40,000 women a year wouldn't die of breast cancer. So clearly what we're doing isn't good enough. 
that's okay. We should want something better tomorrow. I'm thinking about what you said about how personal the choices are for everyone. And, you know, I think if any one of us were to kind of go back to any kind of exposure we've had to women with cancer, women with breast cancer, um, you know, for me, my grandmother um, had breast cancer when she was in her 50s. And she had a scar on her chest, just this brutal scar on her chest. And that came to mind for me when all of this started going on. Um, and then I had a friend in Paris who had a tumor and I felt it. And then it's probably the first time I touched a breast. And then a few months later, she said, you know, I think it's getting bigger. And her gynecologist said, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. And then it was like twice as big when her mother insisted she get a biopsy and it was cancer. And so I thought, you know, I don't know if I want to be in a situation where I've got something that people are telling me isn't cancer and it turns out to be cancer too late. So I think, as you say, like everyone brings their own experience. Right. And I, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, when you were growing up, if there were people in your life that had cancer, um, and at what point did you have your first BRCA case, or at what point did you become aware of BRCA? Um, my, my mother's uh, cousin, Barbara, had, had breast cancer when she was young and eventually died of it. Uh, I would say, you know, I've, I've been dealing with, you know, I've devoted my life to cancer. I, you know, the, we were in 1995 when, so BRCA, most people think it stands for breast cancer. <clears throat> It actually stands for Berkeley, California, because Mary Claire King, who had identified this, was actually at Berkeley at the time, small known fact. Um, but in 1996, when it was cloned, and so there's a lot of changes that have made us able to really <clears throat> think very differently about screening. And I remember I teamed up with a woman who, became, who has become one of my very closest friends. She's a medical oncologist at the University of Chicago, Fumi Olapande who was very interested in also aggressive breast cancer in the African and African-American community and the African diaspora, which they also have their gene um, mutation. Uh, this was around 1996, and we actually had proposed that we put together a national registry. And the NCI, in their infinite wisdom, thought it was kind of a stupid idea. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the situation was that then the only people who really had that information was a company that had a patent on the gene, and a lot of the information was then kind of underground and not available to the community. And the price for that test remained very, very high in spite of the fact that there were a lot of advances in technology that could make this kind of test much more accessible. And that was very frustrating to me. So I'm going to tell you two stories. One, one is about my first patient that we tested for BRCA in 1996, a wonderful, adorable young woman whose mother did not actually, whose mother was a carrier and had never had cancer and never had a bilateral mastectomy, never had cancer. And she had cancer and because she was in her 30s, we wanted to test her. It was 1990s, end of 1996 and 
the minute this became possible, you know, I insisted that we have this available. Again, not because everybody has it, but because if you do have it, it's something really important for you to know. It's like finding those people on the no-fly list. I'm going to go back to that. If you're thinking about breast cancer prevention and trying to think about it in big terms, you'd like to say, well, if we could find the people at highest risk and we could do something about it, it would be important. I've always found it incredible that, you, you know, there's such a, I think most people that I'm very well known for cautioning about overtreatment and overintervention, especially with carcinoma in situ, these precancerous lesions, you know, that maybe confer at most a 20% lifetime risk. And there, we're operating on people and radiating them. And then we're not making any effort to find the people who have an 85% lifetime risk, and in BRCA1 in particular, of aggressive types of cancer. So I've always found, I said, you know, this is people in the treatment world not really aware of the risk world. So that kind of led me to kind of organize things differently to try and put people together and to try and think about how to rethink screening. So I'll come back to that in a minute. The daughter of this woman who was our first carrier was 13 at the time her mother died. And um, I want to bring this up because I think people's experiences make them afraid to know what's going on. And we had called her when she was 25 and tried to encourage her to get testing. And she didn't. And um, she did call me, however, when she had, she was living in Colorado and had a nine centimeter mass in her breast. Um, and I did have, and so I've taken care of her and, you know, we've, she was on one of our trials to try and come up with new drugs to try and improve outcomes. And, you know, we talked about whether or not, I mean, she actually harvested her eggs and I asked her whether she was going to think about testing the eggs. Because she'd already had the eggs in the freezer. And she said, well, I'm kind of expensive. I'm trying to think about it. And it was really interesting to me that, you know, the last thing her mother had said to me, because I went to see her when she was dying at her house, and she asked me to make sure that I watched over her daughter. And it's... You know, I really tried to think hard about why is it that we're not able to take this information and move it from generations. I sort of looked at this young woman. This did not have to happen to her, right? And it's not what you would do for everyone. And she wound up having the same kind of thing, but later. And, you know, so then it's, it's when you think about it, and you think, well, part of what we have to do I think there's something funny about this mic. Um, that uh, my voice is not soft, really. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I think that this is our entire approach to screening. Yeah, why don't you just give me the mic there? Yeah, I think this is, is this better for people? Yeah. So, I, you know, I think that the, I think our whole approach to screening needs to change. And, uh, in fact, we have designed a whole study. It's called the Wisdom Study. With women informed to screen depending on measures of risk. You've got to stick with a good acronym. But 
you know, I, I've thought I've thought about this. You know, part of the problem with screening is our screening tests are okay, but we've been doing the same thing for 25 years. We have not really improved it very much. We're not taking into account the things that we do know about. You know, there are some things that cause a very high risk of breast cancer. There are actually some ways we actually have moved on. We actually can probably identify a lot of the familial risk. And we're not putting that to practice. Fortunately, two things have happened. Myriad uh, Genetics lost their Supreme Court case, so it means you cannot own the genome, can't patent it. That opened the door for new technologies to come in and dramatically reduce the cost of trying to find out whether you have an inherited mutation. The other thing that happened was the Affordable Care Act, and it's incredibly important that that stay intact. Make sure you go out and vote. Um, and that means that you cannot, you, you cannot be discriminated against, you, can, you, can, you, you, you don't have a pre-existing condition. The Genetics Act, as well, is important. And life insurance, they, they don't know, it's too small, and, and they don't discriminate on this. Actually, there is very good data on this. It's not, people don't know enough. They have to have 10 or 20 years of data before they can discriminate on it. And so they just don't have it, they don't know about it. It's too small a part of the population. And it's not that everybody has risk, but my goodness, we should be doing, you know, all the screening controversy. How many people have heard about the controversy of mammography? Okay, wouldn't you like a better answer? Right, okay. <laughs> so I, I think it's time for us to, we have to think about doing modern era trials that really help. And we have to demystify it's not so scary to have a genetic test and, oh my God, am I going to do this? Am I going to be marred in my, my family forever? No, actually everybody comes, everyone inherits good things and bad things from their parents. This needs, when my friend Fumi and I started, we said, well, this is a time that we're going to shepherd this over the next 20 years till it can become a routine of care. And it hasn't become a routine of care. So in the wisdom study, this is 100,000 people that we're going to test. We're going to compare annual screening to personalized screening. We don't treat cancer as if it's one size fits all, and we certainly shouldn't screen for it that way. So we want to test a personalized method, so that includes all the things, the genes you might inherit, the small differences that account for familial risk, other exposures, and come up with when you should start, when you should stop, how often you should screen, and keep that all within the guidelines, but to set up a learning system so that we're committed to saying, look, we're going to take the best model of risk and help people figure out how to optimize their screening. Because, you know, we don't want to overscreen the people that have very low risk, because then you have all the harms that come with it, but none of the benefits. But certainly the people where we can do something about it, that should be our highest priority. So we think this is a way of making it a routine. It actually turns out that it's a healthcare value proposition. It's actually, even with the additional things, it's less expensive and it's higher value. We think this is ev something everyone in the community should be part of. The payers should step up to the plate. Every woman, you can do this from the comfort of your house. Uh, you know, the physicians have to think differently. We all have to think differently because we should want something better tomorrow than we have today. In fact, all of you should be demanding it. There's no reason that we have to learn so slowly. All these changes, you know, we've known about this for 20 years. By knowing things, we can really make change. I think that's so very 
important. And actually, the wisdom study will be open this coming week at UCSF. And uh, actually, we're going to open it up California-wide uh, in the next two months. So, When you say from the comfort of your own home, can you explain that a little bit more? And also, um, are you talking about general population general population so for general. all kinds of mutations no actually we're starting with breast cancer because this is a this is a breast cancer screening test and i think eventually this is a good model for thinking about how to do cancer screening in general um, but i think it's i think you want to start and and i think it's important even though i believe it's better i'm willing to put it to the test and i think if you don't put it to the test just like the women's health initiative you don't learn and we should all be committed as i say look People spend 40 years screening. Spend five years and help make it better. So you figure out, you know, and we have it so that you can be randomly assigned to either the personalized screening or annual screening, which is what a lot of people still do. Um, or if you feel very strongly, you can choose which arm you want to join. That's the way trials should be done. So that, and so it's all on a, on a website. If you want to sign up, we send all the information to your home. So you have, a, you have women who are getting the annual testing, the MRIs, the mammograms, and then you have a group of women who are getting... No, no, no. So if anyone came in, some of you, if you were in the personalized arm, so if you were in the annual arm, just get an annual screening every starting at 40. If you're in the personalized arm, you get a kit sent to your house. We're partnering with Color Genetic, Genomics um, because they actually have a test that's about the price of a mammogram. And we not only have the information about these nine genes that you can inherit, but also the small, very, small variations in genes that we think contribute to familial risk. Now, you might have that, you might not, but there are other things that cause breast cancer risk, like breast density, other exposures. So we have a whole model that assigns you a risk factor. And if your risk is low, you're not even going to come in and screen. And I, I'm happy to come back sometime and talk all about this particular study. But I think the idea is that we're going to tailor a, treat, a screening plan for you depending on your risk. But I think what's important is then as part of a routine, it really is like a population genetics. And it's not just for Jewish people, it's for everybody. To say, you know, because there are people who aren't Jewish who also have mutations, if you know about it, it's something you can do something about and that we can shepherd people through just as we shepherded you through. And you can make decisions that, you know, five years later, are you happy you made your decision? You know, what about someone who has very low risk? We'd like to minimize the kinds of interventions and the, the frightening things that people have. And the other thing is, you know, it's, it, about cancer, people think that cancer is one disease. Cancer is not one disease. It can be very indolent, and it can be very aggressive. It's very important to know which is which. Our treatments are very different today, and you wouldn't want them treated that way. And so my goal is to make sure that we learn who is at risk for what kind of cancer, and that we make those changes accordingly. And we can screen differently. We can treat differently. I think that's how we're going to really make a difference in not, not only in prevention or treatment, but in prevention, which is actually always better than screening. I mean, what is your general feeling about genetic testing? I mean, the ethics, the slippery slope of it. I mean, right now your focus is on um, breast cancer. Uh, I think when you have the systems in place <clears throat> and you can think about what to do, I think 
as long as you don't overreact to the information, I think that it's always a good thing to know more. But you have to have tests that are ready for the prime time. So I think there's some very important uh, safeguards you have to put in place. Uh, I think just random population genetics is a bad idea. I think doing it in a controlled fashion where people really understand there are things called variants of unknown significance. VUS is, for you Princess Bride fans, it's kind of like rodents of unusual <laughs> sizes. Uh, uh, those should not be reported. <clears throat> and what happens is people hear the word cancer or anything related to cancer or variant and assume they've got something terrible. And you can really cause a reaction where you overtreat and you overintervene. I think it's absolutely essential that we not do that. Uh, so that if you can identify truly that very small group of people who are at risk, have all the resources in place to manage them well, just like you experienced, that's a good thing. But you also, on the other hand, have all the safeguards in place to make sure that you don't over-intervene, because there in medicine, unfortunately, we, do a, we can do more harm than good. And I'm the first to say it. You know, you know I call it when, we, when I see it, and I intend to try and stamp some of that out. That is not good. Fear is not a good motive, uh, reason to intervene. You have to get the facts, know what you've got, and treat it accordingly. So I think that that's why, even though I believe all this information is important, I've spent a long time putting an infrastructure in across, you know, starting with the five University of California campuses and building a whole network across the country, people who are ready to use inf this information responsibly. And we're going to put it to the test and find out whether it works. Um, that's what I think is so important. And I think that that's going to make a huge change in the way we think about cancer. Because it turns out that most people are not at risk to get cancer. When we say one in eight people, oh my gosh, that's such a high number. But think about it. Seven in eight people don't get it. So let's make sure that we don't treat torture seven out of eight. We probably can't get down to the one in eight, but maybe two in eight. So that's, that, you know, so that's the idea. But just, you know, there are people who are at risk for getting diabetes or people who are at risk for, you know, for having heart disease. If you know that, you can make better and more appropriate choices. I believe that knowing your risk will help you make better life choices and take care of your health. It turns out that one of the things that really improves your chances of not getting breast cancer is exercise and diet. Well, that actually improves your chance of having better health. Um, but I think that if you know what your risk is, I think you're going to be more motivated to do those things. I think that you're going to be, and, and I've experienced that. You know, I had someone who had a precancerous lesion and she, you know, wanted to have a bilateral mastectomy. And I came <laughs> and I said, but you're smoking. She said, well, how can you tell? I said, well, I can smell it from here. So <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I said, I said, so what you're doing every day is far more risky than this little precancerous lesion you have. I said, go down to our smoking cessation program. Show me you've stopped smoking, and then we'll talk. You know, she quit smoking. She was a two-pack-a-day smoker. Wow. wow. Laura, are and that you probably did much more for her health than anything else I might have done. Do yeah. you get all the funding you need for the work that you want to do with the wisdom study and otherwise? <laughs> of course not. Um, I'll tell you, there's something that I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, 
you know, it, to do, to add the testing for the trial for the, for the genomic test, because it's 100,000 people and it's 50 people, even though it's the cost of a mammogram, it's about $10 million. And we actually have a grant from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which actually is from the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, you know, we couldn't, you know, that's a lot of money to come up with. But what we decided was that the insurance companies should actually do their part to help support change. The money is already in the system. We're already spending it. We need to repurpose it. I think if we're going to solve the healthcare problem, all of us need to step up and figure out how to make those changes and do things that make a difference. So we've been working very hard on pushing the insurance company. This has been two and a half years so far. But we actually have Blue Shield of California stepped up. I think United's going to step forward. But it's very slow going. And I think one of the things that I really want to do is, you know, so I'm trying to create a fund that actually helps us cover the cost of the screening, of the, of the testing, until we can get all of the companies on board. And I really want to start a campaign to really uh, educate the insurance companies and their underwriters about how important this is and to make sure that we get the system to work for us. You know, you don't get to be a pass-through on costs and insurance and take something off the top if you are not contributing to make it better. I think we need to make the future better. Well, what about, for example, my sister who lives in this really kind of isolated rural community? How do you scale it so that for the people who are taking these tests, they have someone to go to who is knowledgeable. So the, the vision for this study, the wisdom study, is that it will turn into a national registry. And that national re registry will be a connection of all the resources that are available. You know, it's 2016. You don't have to have them in your community. Even amongst the state in the University of California, we have really strong genetic counseling in some places and not so strong in others. We actually have a network of 100 primary care providers, and we actually now have people, we're using the system so we can tap into resources across the community. And again, you have to set up, I, I really do think it's important for you to think about the way in which we deliver healthcare, which is challenging in this country. Yeah. However, uh, it's not something that can't be fixed. It is something that can be fixed. And it is important to make sure that people on the other side, like your sister, if she joined the study, which she could, um, could have, yeah. even if she didn't know and yeah. could have chosen either arm, uh -huh. that she would have access to the genetic counseling, that she could be referred in to those people. And for us to really understand where the problems are, to make sure that we have people getting access to care, we're actually really trying to go after the underserved communities as well. Because it's not right to have one level of care for this group of people right. and then another right. and, and actually have it absent for others. Yeah. I, I right. think that's just wrong. And it's something we can do something about. Um, so I think this is a whole way of going, it's a whole way of going forward. It's a whole way in which we should be thinking about um, trying to change care in this community. Okay, I have two more really quick questions and then you guys get to ask questions. So the one question is, it's a hard one to answer quickly, but what do you think of this whole pink ribbon thing? <laughs> so the pink ribbon was actually started by Evelyn Lauder. And Evelyn Lauder started the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. She herself had had breast cancer. 
And Evelyn um, was a dear friend of mine and a, worked tirelessly to build the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and they actually raised $50 million now a year for breast cancer research. And they actually are investing in research and in, 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 in people who are really trying to bring innovation to, um, to the community. So I think that's great. I do think that people use the pink ribbon to say, oh, the answer is go get a mammogram and um, 